0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week, and with us are Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and Craig Jarvis. We'll talk about the governor's race, the Senate race. We'll talk about ads and the upcoming debates, Uh, We'll talk about employees getting, uh, state employees getting bonuses. And we'll talk about the state of the economy and how that's affecting uh, the election. And we'll wrap up with headliner of the week. Uh, Let's start with ads. We're seeing a ton of them. Uh, Craig, uh, there's a group that actually quantified how many we're seeing and uh, who's spending
1: the money on them. So, uh, what did you find out? Yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, everybody knows that we're seeing a lot of ads now, but uh, the Center for Public Integrity, which is a nonpartisan kind of watchdog analytical group, uh, is keeping weekly tabs. They're tracking all the ads spent on state statewide races uh, across the country. And uh, I think it was something like $148 million has been spent so far. Um, of that, uh, $22 million has been spent in North Carolina which is a big, a big chunk. That's like 42,000 ads is what that's bought. Uh, most all of that, $19.4 million of that, is on the governor's race. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing support for, uh, support for Cooper from environmental and education groups, uh, support for the governor on free market and kind of religious right groups, um, and then you just kind of look down at all the other, at some of the other uh, races, which are interesting. Uh, Josh Stein seems to be outspending Buck Newton in the uh, race for attorney general. And in the race for uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who is the incumbent, he doesn't seem to be spending all that much at all. I don't have the numbers with me, but uh, his challenger, Linda Coleman, is spending three or four times as much so far on, uh, on advertising, which I, I guess that means Forrest is confident. I don't know. So.
0: What kind of ads are we seeing out there?
1: Um, well, it's, you know, the range of things. In the, in the, in the governor's ad, you were, seeing, uh, we're seeing McCrory continue to hit Cooper on the crime lab. There's been a whole volley back and forth on, on uh, crime lab problems that, that he either inherited or didn't do enough to, to address however you want to spin it. Um, uh, McCrory's uh, pr- uh, promoting the, uh, the economy, the improved economic conditions. Uh, as something that uh, he can take credit for. Uh, just today, I guess it was Friday, uh, Roy Cooper put one out saying, Look, we need to, if I'm elected, we'll, we'll put these social, divisive social issues like HB2 behind us, and we'll just focus on concrete things we can do to restore, uh, restore North Carolina. So it's, you know, that's, that's what we've seen so far. Okay.
0: And of course, uh, Governor is getting a lot of uh, free TV time right now. Uh, related to Hurricane Matthew that's gonna be uh, storming through the area uh, very soon. Maybe by the time people are listening to this, we'll already be seeing the beginnings of it uh, but uh, all the state leaders, in fact, have been uh, trying to get involved
1: in, yeah, in various ways. Yeah, there's nothing that makes this. you look so good as a natural disaster where you kind of bound to the center of the stage with your windbreaker on and and you uh, kind of take charge and reassure the populace. And certainly the governor has done that. We even saw uh, the attorney general who usually sends out press releases when there's some disaster pending about, you know, don't don't price gouge, no... Um, what's the other thing he really hammers on? Uh, mainly it's price gouging, I guess. Um, but he actually called a press conference this week, too, to physically get in front of the cameras and say don't gouge prices. Uh, we've seen Wayne Goodwin, the, the insurance commissioner, kind of out there saying, you know, I'm, we're watching things and keeping an eye on things. And of course, uh, the agriculture commissioner Steve Troxler has also done that, which isn't to say that these aren't all legitimate concerns. I mean, it's kind of their
2: job, but it certainly gives them a lot of publicity. And I'm almost willing to bet money you would uh, see all of them show up somewhere on the coast next week if there is uh, some some damage to tour. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They love that. The cameras, the TV cameras, are out there, even if we aren't necessarily. Well, the ads
0: that uh, that group counted up were state-level ads, but, of course, their other big race here is uh, on the federal level, and that's the U.S. Senate race. Uh, Colin, we're seeing a lot of spending
2: in that race, too. Uh, what kind of ads are running right now? We're seeing a lot of outside money plowed into ads on these. Uh, I think we're, we might be closing in on the, the $10 million mark, if not higher, on the uh, total amount of uh, ad spending in the Senate race from outside groups. Uh, most recently, Friday... Uh, as we we're recording this, there's uh, a couple new ones in almost sort of balancing each other out in terms of the uh, money being spent. Uh, both these groups are spending about $1.7 or $1.8 million. On the one side, you have the National Rifle Association. They've got an anti-Deborah Ross ad out that uh, sort of attacks her for opposing or supporting some gun control restrictions and, I think, opposing some efforts uh, in the North Carolina legislature to loosen up uh, regulations on on guns, um, and also mentioning the uh, sex offender registry issue, which seems to come up in nearly all of these ads uh, that are that are targeting her. This seems to be the main thrust of the criticism of Deborah Ross that fits into the neat little package of these 30-second ads these uh, groups are buying, is to uh, hit her on her concerns that she's voiced uh, in the past as a ACLU leader about the the sex offender registry, we should point out that uh, she maintains that she was always supportive of the registry. Uh, She just simply wanted to work to make it better and then went on to, uh, as a legislator, uh, support and vote for things that strengthened and and funded the registry. But that seems to have been uh, the most popular line of attack from uh, conservative-oriented groups that are weighing in on this. Uh, On the opposite side of things, uh, this week we had the uh, SEIU and another labor group um, joining up together uh, with an anti-Richard Burr ad that's starting Friday as well. That ad uh, seems to be largely based on a story that uh, our McClatchy DC Bureau did uh, earlier this week or last week on uh, Richard Burr's uh, the amount of money he's received in campaign contributions from various big oil companies and the like, uh, as well as some of the uh, stock uh, he owns in a, in a few of these companies, and then sort of how that may or may not have, have influenced his policymaking on that. Uh, so they've got a 30-second ad trying to summarize that and suggest that uh, he's using his time in the Senate to benefit himself. Uh, his uh, staff members uh, have... Fairly vocally denied that there's a connection between the the policy um, that he's been supporting and the, the fact that he's gotten money from some of the folks who, who benefit from the policy. But uh, we'll be seeing lots more of those uh, ads taking over the the airwaves, and I think the result of these, because uh, they've really only started in the last month or so, it has been to catapult the Senate race to. A little bit more prominent than it's had for most of the campaign season. Uh, up until uh, September, I think most of the discussion, uh, most of the ads and, and chatter we were seeing was all about the governor's race or the presidential and the, the Senate race was kind of flying below the radar. Uh, now that we've got all these outside groups uh, jumping in there with ads, the campaigns themselves are doing a fair amount of advertising now, um, they're sucking up as much TV airtime as, as anything else it seems. There's another source
1: of uh, of uh, ads that's about to come uh, covering the governor's race too, the uh, resurrection of this group called Real Jobs North Carolina, uh, which was formed in 2010 and put a whole bunch of money into into a legislative and governor's race in 2010 and 2012. Uh, this is Art Pope's group. Uh, he is uh, he's kind of I, I, I'm not sure how. Uh, dormant it's been but they're kind of suddenly in the final weeks here getting going again. Art Pope, there's a guy from the uh, UNC Board of Governors David Powers and a guy whose name, oh, Michael Watley uh, who was involved in offshore energy exploration as a lobbyist. They're like the three main fundraisers that are out to uh, kind of get this last minute infusion to for uh, to, um, to buy some ads that are supposed to be quote hard hitting anti-Cooper ads um, there's some concerns that the Democrats have raised about whether there's improper coordination between the McCrory campaign and this group. That gets to be real, sl- sl- uh, sl- you know, slick territory. There, it's kind of hard to pin down what is uh, coordination or what isn't. But it's uh, it, it's kind of limited in the final 60 days before an election. So we're keeping an eye on how that develops. Um, they can. They, they were planning a group, I mean, a fundraiser for Friday tonight, which was actually uh, postponed because of the weather, but uh, uh, the governor was supposed to be there and Tom Pills was supposed to be there. The question is, was this an event they planned for the, for the governor? That gets to be a little problematic with the coordination. If it's just an event and, oh, look, the governor stopped by and wants to say a few words, you can kind of get away with it there. But anyway, this is all murky campaign finance stuff. I just want to point out that uh, Art Pope's got uh, is raising some last-minute big money, I guess.
0: No, uh, voters are not getting much of a chance to uh, see these candidates, uh, other than this, the caricatures in in campaign ads. But uh, they are going to get to see them debate. Uh, maybe not that much, but they will get to see them a couple, uh, a couple of the big debates next week, uh, both in the Senate race and the governor's race. Um, what, uh, what's going to happen? We've got, uh, um,
1: the governor's race Wednesday and the Senate race. Got wh- The governor's, the race, Tuesday, governor's race, race Tuesday, the Senate race Thursday. And yeah, it's a chance for people to see these guys outside their polished image in, in the TV ads they, they buy and to see how they, they handle themselves. And, uh, um, you know, it's important to, to try to reach a lot of people who just haven't made up their mind or don't know what to think yet. And when uh, two years ago, during the, the uh, Senate race with Hagan and Tillis, um, this debate format, there was a series of three debates. Two of them were at the UNC studios uh, in RTP, which these are going to be. And they got a lot of viewers. They had 600,000 the first one and 800,000 the second one. So it's very, very important, potentially, to get, to, you know, it's a, it's a big way to get your name out there. Uh, I think it's helpful
2: this year because, um, and this has probably been sort of a gradual trend in, in state politics, is there are very few events where an average undecided voter can go out and hear... Deborah Ross or Roy Cooper or McCrory or Burr speak, they they do a lot of events that are, I guess, technically public but are not heavily advertised. They're often a, a group of very sympathetic uh, people to, to the cause. Uh, and for people who want to see these folks unfiltered outside the sound bites you get on the news or the 30-second ads that, that you see that are, are polished up, you don't get many chances like that uh, this this time around. And that's where these debates are helpful. And, and why it's kind of troubling that we only have at least at the moment, one televised debate per race. Uh, In the past, we've seen about three the last couple cycles for for both Senate races and for governor's races. Uh, In the governor's race, we did have the one forum down in Charlotte back in June, but that was not sort of a TV studio televised setting, so it didn't get as many views. Um, But at this point, the two this week, uh, if if you want to see the debates, these are the ones you've got to watch because you probably will not get another chance unless something else gets announced in, in the next couple weeks, which is uh, it's certainly different than we've seen in the past, but I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the campaigns not wanting to do more, at least certain campaigns. Uh, the Richard Burr camp uh, has been pretty clear from the beginning that they really only felt that one debate was needed, that he's too busy with his Senate intel things and trying not to really be a, a heavy campaigner until Congress was out in August. Um, Deborah Ross, I think, was calling for a total of four and still would like to see more. Uh, and then, Craig, you covered the uh, yeah, governor's yeah. end of things. And yeah,
1: it gets very political fast, just the discussion of debates. I mean, I, who can get out of the gate first? I think it was in May, if not earlier, when Cooper said, we're going to do three debates, I think it was. And then right after that, the McCrory people were saying, we're going to do six or seven debates. You know, why aren't you? And they just kind of use it back and forth. Uh, it's, that's kind of ironic in a way that McCrory was uh, putting so many out there. I just, just today came across a story we ran back in um, uh, when Walter Dalton was running against McCrory, and uh, Dalton was asking for eight debates, and McCrory was saying, What are you, dreaming? That's just ridiculous. So, uh, you know, it's, it's politics, big surprise.
2: Yeah, and the conventional wisdom of debates, not just here in North Carolina, but in every race, everywhere, is that the, the underdog in the race is always calling for more debates right. than the person who's on top. Which sort of is, shows the the interesting dynamics of the governor's race, and that you have the governor, uh, the incumbent, wanting more debates than than challenger, but the polls would indicate that uh, yeah. the governor needs uh, something to to come back on, and perhaps if he had a, a series of strong debate performances, that might uh, change the the numbers a little bit in his favor. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. He's got to work really hard. He can't. It's. I think even though Cooper has had a slight statistical edge in pretty much all the polls. You know, neither of them can relax and think that, they, that it's, they've got it
2: made, and I think uh, certainly the governor wants to get out there as much as he can. And it's going to be interesting, I think, on uh, Tuesday night to see Roy Cooper's uh, role in this because he's really, uh, like I said, you haven't seen a whole lot of him in, in public settings doing long-form speeches and rolling out policy ideas so yeah. it'll be very interesting to see the the, the topics that he covers in the, the debate and uh, sort of what he promotes as, as his plan as opposed to just yeah. uh, concerns about what the governor has done in the direction of the state right. the last few years.
1: And they're two distinct personalities and so some people might be turned off by one or attracted by the other so yeah that kind of that makes it interesting.
0: These are big enough that they're drawing uh, national names to come down yeah. and host them right?
1: Yeah Todd uh, What's his name? Chuck, Chuck Todd, Todd, Todd from Meet the Press. Chuck Todd from Meet the Press is two, a, two first names. Yeah, yeah, I got the first one wrong or the second one
2: wrong. Yeah, so he's doing the governor's doing debate, the governor's and then uh, in the Senate debate, they've got uh, Jonathan Carl, who is the White House lead correspondent for ABC News. So another uh, fairly well-known uh, national reporter, maybe not quite on the level of Chuck Todd, but uh, certainly a, a big name. Uh, to, to come down here and, and do this particular debate, because of these these are races that are, are being watched pretty closely uh, at a national level, and, and certainly the the choice of moderators, being as it's not just you know some local TV anchor, as, as we often get in these, uh, I think says a lot about the, the dynamics of the race. Yeah.
0: yeah, if you needed more evidence that we're in the national spotlight. Uh, well, uh, down-ballot races uh, are getting uh, buried by these, but uh, um, they're doing ads, too. And, Colin, you wrote about uh, uh, Representative Gary Pendleton's uh, ads. Uh, What did you write about there?
2: Yeah, so he had um, sent out a mailer. Apparently, this is a fascinating uh, tactic, and I think it's actually a really smart tactic. Uh, The list of people who have requested absentee ballots uh, is actually a public record. You can go onto the Board of Elections website anytime and download this enormous spreadsheet that gives you the names of the people. It gives you their address. It gives you their address where they've requested an absentee ballot to be sent. So these are people who are, uh, are people who are not only likely voters, they're pretty much guaranteed voters. So he's been going after them by directly writing to them. Uh, but where things get a little uh, dicey for him is that he's using uh, the General Assembly's uh, seal and and what, you know, appears to be official letterhead. Now, when you talk to him, he points out, you know, there's a disclaimer in fine print at the bottom that says this is not printed at taxpayer expense. And there was an ethical opinion uh, from the Legislative Ethics Committee, that's a committee composed of legislators themselves, that said, you can't use your General Assembly stationery that has been paid for as a, Uh, a state government supply to campaign on but you can use a facsimile uh, of that, provided you have a, a disclaimer that makes it clear to folks that, that it is campaign mail, it's not um, official government correspondence. So he sent that out uh, just as a way to try to clarify his record, some stuff about HB2. His opponent, uh, Cynthia Ball, the Democrat in that race, has, has been criticizing him for uh, this this choice of campaign tactics. But there's been a bunch of interesting stuff with Pendleton this week, some of it we didn't really get to write about. I've, I've heard some complaints about the size of his signs. I don't know whether that's uh, whether he's in complaint Clients of that or not, but he does have larger um, signs with bigger posts than a lot of your typical um, highway uh, campaign signs. Uh, and then he also had a mailer out this week that repeatedly misspelled his own name. His, his last name is P E N D L E T O N, but the, this was D E L instead of D L E in like four or five different instances over the course of the mailer. So spell check is your friend, y'all. If you're spending a lot of money on mailers, it really helps to hit the spell check <laughs> button.
0: Well, it's one of a couple ways uh, where people, candidates and people were being criticized uh, for mixing official business and uh, uh, the elections, the campaigns. And the other one that you wrote about, Colin, was uh, the bonuses that went out to
2: state employees. So what was the Democrats' beef with uh, with that? Yeah, so to sort of remind people, back in the uh, budget cycle, there was a big debate over Uh, state employees. Obviously, we had the big raises, uh, relatively big raises for uh, teachers this year. State employees were getting uh, not not as good of a deal. Uh, The the debate was whether they should have raises that stay in place year to year or whether they should just get a one-time bonus. And the compromise between the House and the Senate was to do sort of a mixture of both, that you'd have a fairly small um, across-the-board raise, merit raises in there, and then some um, across-the-board one-time bonus uh, as well as some um, merit bonus money uh, available in the budget. Uh, So that happened, I guess, when the budget passed in late June, early July, and now here we are in October, and uh, apparently this is the month where that uh, bonus is going to show up in, in state employees' paychecks. Um, so the uh, state employees group, Scenic, uh, fired pretty h- back pretty hard on that one. They were feeling like this was a, a political decision of timing that uh, in the past we've seen these sort of bonuses either go out around the time that the budget's passed or perhaps they come out in December as sort of a unofficially Christmas bonus like you'd get in, in a lot of private sector jobs. Uh, this time the the timing is October. And, and when I talked to the State Human Resources Office, they said that uh, under the, the statute and the way that the Um, state employees' performance evaluations were scheduled, that this was the month that uh, made the most sense to do it, that it wasn't really a a political consideration. Uh, I couldn't find anywhere in the budget bill that specifically stated that October was the month that uh, things could go out, but certainly there was a lot of uh, consternation that uh, somehow this was a, a political ploy by Pat McCrory to Uh, try to curry some favor with state employees right around the time that they're making up their minds of, of whether to support his uh, bid for a second term or not. So uh, made for, for some interesting uh, discussions this week. And um, it'll be interesting to see that pop up into people's paychecks. Uh, I think it also applies to retirees as well. I should note that uh, state retirees uh, will get their uh, cost of living one-time bonus uh, also in their October check.
3: All right. All
0: right. Well, uh, Will, uh, you have a a big project that's running uh, in this Sunday's paper. At least if the hurricane doesn't uh, blow the state away, it will run (laughs) this Sunday. Um, But give us a little preview of that. It's part one of a uh, four-part project that we're running um, that we're calling the North Carolina Report Card. We're trying to look at uh, the state of uh, the economy, uh, health, education, and quality of life in North Carolina. Quality of life being kind of a catch-all category for a lot of things, including crime and uh, uh, traffic and some other things. But uh, you had the economy installment, and uh, you were looking into several measures of uh, the economy, as well as talking to people on the ground. and. Um, in academia, uh, what what's did you find? What's sort of your uh, uh, assessment and what did you focus on?
3: Yeah, we looked at five major indicators of the economy, um, you know, ranging from home ownership to poverty rate to wages to unemployment, things like that. And um, really um, there's uh, an overarching trend, which I don't think is, you know, too shocking, which is that, you know, th- things are definitely better than they were, you know, five, six years ago in the depths of the recession. Although in many cases, it's not quite back to the same levels as they were in the late nineties and early two thousands when we really had some boom times. Um, But it was, it was a really interesting piece just for, for me to report. I spent a lot of time on it, which, you know, (laughs) appreciative of the editors for (laughs) letting us reporters do that every once in a while. And um, yeah, I think I'll get back and write five blog posts. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, No, I I think, uh, you know, people who do check it out are, you know, are going to be, uh, you know, kind of surprised by some of the, you know, the different numbers and little pieces in there. Um, Went, you know, to some different corners of the state to talk to some people both about the economy and also politics. You know, i here in downtown Raleigh. um, You know, I talked to a young person, 26 years old, who started his own business and is a big Hillary Clinton supporter. Um, He's Latino. He wants to see immigration reform, thinks that that would help the economy by adding, you know, a lot of new taxpayers into the rolls. Um, I also went into um, you know Donald Trump country down in Laurinburg, Scotland County, um, where you know the kind of things that Trump talks about, you know the the hardships of NAFTA and all these other free trade deals, have really had a bad impact and actually made Scotland County the place with the highest unemployment in the state. In the last twenty years, they've lost. Something like more than 2,000 jobs, mostly in the textile industry, specifically to free trade deals, um, not even just kind of like generic manufacturing losses. There's actually a federal welfare program specifically for manufacturing workers who lost their jobs because of free trade, um, <laughs> which is one of the, the funny things that I learned researching this piece. I never knew about that. But, um, yeah, 20 years, 2,000 jobs in a county of only about 35,000 people. Um, So I talked to them, and uh, mostly they're focused on basically what the schools are doing to be a little bit better prepared in the future. Part of the reason why there's such high unemployment there is um, there just wasn't really, you know, the education among a lot of the adults because there were these, you know, these low-skill, easy-to-get jobs that paid a pretty decent salary. Um, And now since they're gone everyone is just unemployed even though everyone in the county tells me that there are jobs it's just people lack the skills so um you know we kind of looked at that statewide whether it was you know lack of high school degrees or you know community college training holding back people in some areas or lack of you know you know college degrees in other places um you know like the big metros holding people back um and you know kind of how it is going to play into politics and you know maybe uh, you know, kind of inform, you know, how people are going to uh, to mark their ballots <laughs> mm-hmm. come November.
0: Well, and we hear a lot of rhetoric from this on uh, in the governor's race. So, um, for example, uh, Governor Cory talks about the Carolina comeback and has a, a lot of uh, things to tout related to job growth. Um, one thing that he says a
3: lot is that uh, unemployment rate has improved in all 100 counties, right? Exactly. And that's one of those things that is... Technically true, but you know, and then you have to look at some of the other things. For instance, half of the state's counties have lost population in the last five years, um, and most of those are probably going to continue losing population, um, at least for the next decade or so, according to some census reports. Um, so you know, while the while the unemployment rate is down, especially in a lot of these smaller, more rural counties. Uh, you know, sometimes there has been job growth. Sometimes there hasn't. But either way, you know, a lot of it is because people are are leaving. They're, you know, they're basically being forced to move to the, to the larger metro areas in search of work. Um, and I talked to some economists and some business leaders for this story as well. Um, and, you know, they said basically the trend is, you know, companies these days want the steady stream of, you know, young cheap but educated labor aka you know fresh college graduates um for you know whatever it is finance tech pharmaceuticals and you know places where you find those are places like Asheville and raleigh and you know greenville you know basically you know anywhere that has a university is doing pretty well um and anywhere that's a big city is doing pretty well it's the the medium-sized cities and the rural areas that are Tending to struggle a little bit more but yeah the the unemployment rate is uh you know one of those things that you know you see in the governor's race and you know both sides can spin it either way they want you know mccrory can say that the unemployment rate is down in all 100 counties and that's true roy cooper can say that you know a dozen counties have lost jobs since mccrory came into office and that's also true so that you know i mean with any way of looking at the economy there's a lot of numbers and a lot of different ways to slice it and Kind of hard to tell, you know, which came first, who's to blame, who's not to blame. But uh, we just try to <laughs> to put the numbers out there, and we have a lot of pretty graphs with the story too. And it takes a longer uh,
0: it takes a longer lens too than just the the few years of the the McCrory administration. So it looks back. Uh, yeah, we go back, back into the years, '90s so. with it. Um, um, and one thing I thought was interesting was that, you know, there's a rural-urban divide. We
3: kind of that, know that, but uh, North Carolina is sort of harder hit by that because there's, uh, it's more rural, right? Yeah, it? this is actually maybe the most interesting thing that I learned. Um, North Carolina, about 66% of the population lives in urbanized areas, which is basically places with uh, population of, well, I think they look at actually population density for that um, but uh, the national average is 80% compared to 66% here. And we're on par with states. Um, well, we're on par with South Carolina, but also like Alaska and Wyoming, which I always think of as very rural states. But they're just as urban as North Carolina is, or I guess you could say we're just as rural as they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. What, is, what are some people doing about the skills gap?
0: You talked to people. Uh, you went to Scotland County. You uh, also talked to people in Rocky Mount. What are... What are people doing about it? Because it sounds like that's the thing that uh, everybody's identifying as the big problem is this gap between uh, uh, education and and the jobs that are out there.
3: Yeah, and that's uh, that is bipartisan agreement on that. Um, you know, both the candidates for governor have advocated for more uh, money into higher education, whether that or you know, at least making higher education more affordable. Um, I talked to an economist who said that you know, while higher education is important, we really need to put more into K twelve. Um, and then you know, there's a, even just beyond government. Like I said, this business owner here in Raleigh, he uh, he's starting a uh, basically like a coding boot camp for minority teenagers to help them, you know, uh, you know, be aware of you know the the opportunities that exist in a place like Raleigh in the in these tech jobs that pay so well and are so abundant. And then obviously Scotland County, that the high school actually has a bunch of businesses on campus that the students run. Um, and that are open to the public so they can get, you know, on the job training without ever having to leave school. Or, you know, they can take classes in things like nursing and welding and plumbing, you know, stuff that, you know, i never had in high school. I bet most people probably never had in high school. But that's just kind of the, uh, the reality of the economy now is, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to get these kids ready so that they can go straight into a job. Day one, I talked to the welding teacher there. He was telling me um, about a student he had who just recently graduated and, um, you know, got a job making um, a pretty decent salary. And I looked it up, and it's actually above the median household income in Scotland County. So here's this 19-year-old, only a high school degree, and he's in the top half of families already just because, you know, he knows how to weld. So things like that to try and, you know, help the young generation be, you know, be more prosperous than, you know, than the county is now.
0: Right. Well, everybody should check out uh, Will's story, uh, the North Carolina report card, uh, part one of that. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us.
3: Today, my new dad threw a barbecue. I burnt everything. Ah!
2: who is your headliner of the week who is your headliner of the week who is your headliner of
0: the week head 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 headliner of the week welcome back to Domecast and now it's time for headliner of the week so who was the most uh, interesting, important, significant uh, person in the news this week
2: Uh, Colin let's start with you
0: Who's All your headliner of the week?
2: All right. I am going with fancy chefs. And, and yes, I got up some flack on Twitter for, for using this phrase to describe the uh, James Beard Foundation's Restaurant and Chef Awards Committee. That's the, the proper term here. Um People are giving me flack for calling them fancy chefs on Twitter, so like any good uh, politician, I'm going to double down and keep calling them that. But uh, they uh, are the latest group to uh, boycott North Carolina over House Bill 2. This is a group that uh, travels to different cities um, and essentially is able to really put a boost and a spotlight on on any city's culinary scene. They were supposed to be coming to Raleigh. Now they are not going to be coming to Raleigh, so this is going to be a pretty big hit to the... uh, Foodie scene, the uh, high end and, and sort of well reviewed restaurants in this area that we're gonna, hoping to get visits from some of the most high profile um, folks in the culinary community uh, around the country. That's not going to happen now, which of course is a little bit ironic given that most of the uh, restaurateurs uh, in, in this demographic in, in Raleigh are already pretty anti HB2 and are essentially going to get. Harmed uh, financially uh, because of a, a boycott. So for that, I'm I'm going with uh, fancy chefs, aka the James Beard Foundation. My headliner,
0: just the fancy ones, though, to be clear. I could still yeah. get
2: barbecue and biscuits and and those. Things. Yeah, the, they're the, not boycotting. The, the lobby, it, whatever the lobbying arm of you know barbecue and Pit fast masters, food and stuff. So. Uh, I guess they are still coming, where they weren't coming to begin <laughs> with. I have no idea, but but the, on the fancy end, boycott is happening. Okay,
0: all right. Uh, Will, uh, so we got uh, the fancy chefs, James Beard. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week?
3: My headliner of the week is John Swain. He is the CEO of the International Civil Rights Center and Museum in Greensboro. Um, he made the news uh, probably for something that he r- would rather not have um, earlier this week. He uh, came out that the museum had denied Donald Trump a photo op at the museum, and um, Trump wanted to come in and, uh, you know, for security reasons, basically shut it down so he could take some photos there. Uh, Swain told him, no, we offer tours, but we don't really do that. Um, He also voiced some concerns about the sincerity of Donald Trump's uh, intent. And in return, uh, Trump supporters have been calling the museum with all sorts of insults and racial epithets and have threatened to shoot it up and or burn it down. Um, So that uh that actually made n- national headlines just because uh, you know of the pretty salacious nature of everything. Um, but for that reason, John Swain. Right. And
0: they, I think they said they would uh, give him a, uh, uh, a tour if he wanted. They just weren't exactly. going to do yeah. what they, uh, w- w- closed down the museum was right. essentially what they were not going to
3: do. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I guess, and he said, you know, Trump's people, they, they, they weren't really interested in the tour. They just wanted the photo op. And so he said, no, thanks. Right. And has earned quite the backlash that I'm sure he was not expecting or uh, appreciating. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, John Swain in the hat for Headliner of the Week for uh, the Greensboro Museum uh, and the Fancy Chefs of James Beard. Uh, Craig, who's your headliner in the week?
1: Well, of course, we're overlooking Hurricane Matthew here, so I will, uh, I will pick Hurricane Matthew, not only for, we hope, it will be its limited uh, uh, physical storm damage I- impact, but also for its political opportunism.
0: All right, Hurricane Matthew. Uh, so we've got the fancy chefs of Jane's Beard. We've got John Swain, and we've got Hurricane Matthew in the hat. Um, I think I have to go with Hurricane Matthew. Uh, I, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the big news around here, uh, and and all of our other uh, political news uh, kind of pales in comparison with to the uh, the destruction we might see with that. So we'll we'll hope everybody will uh, stay safe over the weekend and uh please we can listen to
2: podcasts <laughs> <laughs> sit in your house and just listen to a lot of podcasts. Listen to
0: podcasts if you live on the coast don't don't try to save your stuff just get out of there uh and hopefully it doesn't uh, do that much damage but uh but yeah hurricane matthews our headliner of the week so uh stay safe everybody and listen to us next week on domecast